This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Lots of stuff to talk about this hour. A bit later, we'll evaluate the science behind sleep tracking apps and gadgets and how the brain can be hacked with flashes of light to combat jet lag. First up, though, has, has this ever happened to you? You're sitting on a plane, traveling over a large piece of open ocean. You look out the window and you see something, something weird down there. It's long and narrow. It stretches for miles, like it's an island. And, and this one is gray-colored, like a cluster of rocks floating in the water. Huh. What, what would you do if you saw that? Well, most people, I'd say, would go back to reading their Kindle or watching the in-flight movie. But in 2012, someone thought, hey, that's weird. I should tell someone. And that kicked off an expedition to the Southwest Pacific Ocean where researchers would find out it was floating pumice expelled from an underwater volcano, one of tens of thousands of volcanoes under the sea. And here to talk about it with me and tell us all about it is Adam Sewell. He's chief scientist for deep submergence at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in Massachusetts. Adam, welcome to Science Friday. Thanks, Ira. It's great to be here. Let's start about just how incredible it is that someone saw this from an airplane and thought to say something to the right people. I would have thought someone, hey, someone already knows about this. Who am I going to tell? Yeah, it, it's uh, it's amazing. I mean, it, you mentioned there's there's thousands of volcanoes in the ocean. They're erupting all the time. But we only find out about them through kind of serendipitous events like this. And, and we're very appreciative of uh, the woman who noticed this and and let people know because it uh, kicked off for us a really exciting uh, uh, expedition. Do, do you get a lot of eruptions reported that way, or is this something uh, unusual? It, it's pretty unusual. You know, the the over the last hundred years or so, there's been about three thousand eruptions on land that have been documented. In the oceans, there's only been about thirty. Oh. Uh, so so it's really uh, a rare event when we find out an eruption happened and can get out there yeah. right away to look at it. So let, give us an idea of how you got this big pumice raft started. What what did it look like? How big was it? Oh, the pumice raft was, uh, you know, based on satellite imagery that we looked at uh, after the fact, the pumice raft was about 400 square kilometers. And that, <laughs> for reference, is about the, the area of New Orleans or Denver. So this is a massive uh, you know, body of, of pumice floating in the ocean. So the eruption happened in 2012, but you're not able to get out there to study it until 2015. First, why is there such a long delay and did you miss it? <laughs> um, you know, it, it takes a while to mount an expedition of this nature. Um, it, it requires, you know, uh, proposals to funding agencies, and we we're very fortunate that the National Science Foundation supported this work. But you also have to get a ship and deep submergence vehicles together and a whole crew of scientists. And uh, even though it took three years to get out there, mm. it was still fantastic it, to be able to see the deposits from this eruption and to know that they came from this particular event is something we don't often get to do in the deep ocean. Were you able to actually go down and study the volcano itself? Yeah, we had uh, on board with us a remotely operated vehicle called Jason and an autonomous robotic vehicle called Sentry. Those are operated here out of Woods Hole. And with them, we were able to make really detailed maps of the seafloor and then go down with a, a robotic vehicle that was our 
eyes and hands, for for lack of a better word, um, controlled from the ship, but uh, to see hmm. what's down there and pick up the samples. Does a submarine volcano look like a, one that you see on land? Oh, remarkably similar. So when we created these detailed maps of the volcano, I kind of put them next to uh, photos of, of subaerial volcanoes or volcanoes on land, and literally you cannot tell the difference. They look almost identical, some of the, the landforms that are produced. You know, because we see eruptions in Hawaii all the time, but, you know, you never hear about these underwater eruptions until somebody sees something unusual. Yeah, that's right. I, the you know most of the volcanism, about seventy-five percent of the Earth volcanism happens underwater. But we don't really have a great ability at this time to detect when those eruptions occur, and and even less so to see them uh, in action. Tom, how many do you think? I said tens of thousands. Is that being a too big a number? Under, under oh no, one? no, yeah. I think that's that's totally reasonable. I mean, there's a you know, 65,000 mile long chain of volcanoes on uh, on the global mid-ocean ridge that, uh, that uh, you know, we've visited probably one to two percent of it. Mm. And um, uh, why, why don't we come up with some better way then of, of monitoring these submarine volcanoes? Uh, is it just a question of money, you know, putting down monitoring devices, satellites? What What's the, the story here on that? Well, I think it's a, a question of technology, but I think the technology is caught up, and and maybe it's a question of will. You know, we have uh, uh, satellites above the Earth monitoring it, and we use those to understand weather and to and to you know do all sorts of amazing monitoring of our our planet. And I think we have a growing recognition that we mm. uh, that the oceans are equally as important. So I think there the technology exists, and it's a matter of uh, finding the will and the resources to to monitor the oceans in the same way. You know, I, I mentioned a couple of uh, earthly, meaning on the ground, uh, volcanoes by name. You know, the, do mm-hmm. all the volcanoes underwater have names too? Uh, you know, a lot of them have names, but, uh, but you know, as you mentioned, there, there are thousands of them and, and many of them uh, don't have a name and many of them have not been discovered even. And this one has a name? That we're this one about. has a name. Yeah, it's Havre Volcano, and it's part of a, a string of volcanoes that run to the northeast from New Zealand called the Kermadec Arc. There's about 30 uh, or so volcanoes in a line between uh, between New Zealand and uh, Fiji, and this is one of those. Some of those reach all the way to the sea surface and make islands, but most of them are down at, uh, you know, 500 to 2,000 meters below the, the sea surface. And so how tall would this volcano be underwater? This volcano, uh, its summit is at about 700 meters below the sea surface. Its base is around 1,500 to 2,000 meters. So the volcano itself stands a, a kilometer high, and, uh, and uh, it looks just like a volcano <laughs> That you'd see uh, on land, but it's it's no one yeah. ever gets a chance to see it in the same way. Yeah, we're looking on our website. There's a photo of of the volcano. Now, when this giant raft of pumice is floating, mm-hmm. how much of the of uh, the volcanic junk coming out of it, the magma coming out, it winds up floating, and how much you know winds up going down the cone of the volcano? Yeah. So the the one of the fascinating things we learned about this eruption is that about 
75 to 80 percent of the material that came out during the eruption uh, may, went up into that pumice raft and it floated away from the volcano. So the stuff that was deposited on the volcano is only a small fraction of the material that came out. So when we look back at the rock record from uh, kind of old eruptions, you're going to have a really skewed view of, of how large these eruptions uh, can be. We have a couple of questions that came in as sort of the same question. If you named this uh, volcano, would the woman who saw it, would she be (laughs) responsible for the name? I like no discoverers see things. You name it after the discoverer. Yeah, there's there's, uh, a bunch of strange names for for C4 features. There's actually a process to officially name it through an organization called JEBCO, um, but uh, a lot of names are just produced on the fly when folks are out at sea and they stick around. So there's volcanoes named after Norse gods and after people's pets and kids. Uh, I would hope that in this case, uh, the woman who saw it would get a chance to yeah. uh, to name it. Well, both for her. Um, <laughs> then now, when the pumice comes up in these giant, uh, giant math, do you think that a lot of people have seen this before from other volcanic undersea eruptions, but just never knew what it was and never reported them? Yeah, no, I think that, uh, I mean... In that part of the world where these eruptions uh, happen a little more frequently, people find uh, pumice uh, washing up on the beach all the time. So the pumice from this eruption was being found years after the the actual event. So there's all sorts of uh, uh, evidence for, for these eruptions, but it takes kind of a special circumstance yeah. to see it you know, when it's right when it's coming up, as this woman did. Is the, If you go to your beach, I mean, obviously this is floating. Could this float all the way across the Pacific, you know, to Hawaii and maybe this west coast of the U.S.? Sure. Uh, it's possible, you know, depending on the currents. What's interesting is that a lot of the pumice will eventually sink because it gets colonized by um, kind of organisms, biological organisms. And in, in some cases, these floating pumice can act as vectors for moving organisms from one part of the ocean uh, to the other. So sort of a microbiome develops inside the pumice. Yeah, and and not so micro. There's barnacles, there's, uh, you know, uh, starfish, there's all sorts of things that end up clinging to this, uh, you know, tiny floating island that Mm -hmm. uh, is working its way across the ocean surface. How did the the discoverer actually reach you people? How How did she know who to talk to? Well, you know that part of the story, I'm not, uh, I'm not too clear on. But she had read a scientific paper about pumice floating in the oceans, and she got in touch with the author of that paper, and uh, and he got in touch with the uh, New Zealand Navy that was happened to have a ship in the area to to kind of confirm the sighting. Wow. So we don't know who she is. This is her name on a paper or something. Uh, yeah, her name is no, her name's not on the paper, but we do know who she is. Her name's Maggie DeGraw. She's a resident of New Zealand and was flying from uh, Apia to New Zealand when she saw this. Well, she's probably a Science Friday listener, I think, an international <laughs> listener. Absolutely. If she's listening to this, I'd love to hear from her. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you top this one? What's what? What's your most exciting next thing on your list? Oh my gosh, you know, the the thing about working in the deep ocean and, and on volcanoes in particular is that we know so little about them that every time we, we have a chance to go out there, we get to make exciting discoveries. And a place that I'm heading this year is the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, mm. where we actually find rocks on the seafloor that are 
uh, lava that are so bubbly that when you bring them up, they start popping. And that's a really cool thing to see. I, I can't top that, Adam. <laughs> Great way to end that segment. Adam Sewell, Chief Scientist for Deep Submergence at uh, Woods Hole, the famous Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. It was great to be here. Thanks, Ira. And we do have some cool images of that volcano on our website at sciencefriday.com slash volcano. When we uh, come back, we're going to peek into the flu season, and it is a nasty one. What, we, what uh, we need, a universal vaccine. Are we closer to getting one? We'll talk about it after the break, so stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. A hundred years ago this month, the 1918 flu pandemic began sweeping across the globe, killing 50 to 100 million people. And as we reach the peak flu season here in the Northern Hemisphere, by all accounts, this year is one for the books, though frankly and thankfully not on the scale of 1918. The virus is doing something experts have never seen before. It's a spreading across the continental U.S., all at the same time, in every one of the 48, 49 states, actually. That's never happened, and experts don't exactly know why. Not only that, but the flu is more severe. Hospitalization rates are up from 14 to 23 people per 100,000 as of early January. Those are some scary numbers. But the flu vaccine remains effective against this year's dominant strain only about one-third of the time. So why still so low? Here to help us grapple with what a severe flu season means is Alicia Fry, medical epidemiologist in the Influenza Division at the Centers for, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And we want to know if your community has been hit hard by the flu. Do you have any questions about vaccine effectiveness? Give us a call, our number, 844-724-8255. You can also tweet us at SciFry. Welcome to Science Friday, Dr. Fry. Thank you. Give, give, us a, give us a brief idea what the difference between an active flu season and a severe flu season like the one we're having now is. Okay. Well, I think when we uh, think about this season, it's important to think about two things. One is how widespread mm. the disease is, and two is what is the severity. And when we think about severity, we usually look at outpatient visits, hospitalizations, and death. So widespread, as you mentioned, this year is really almost unprecedented in the, in the fact that all 49 states are, are reporting widespread activity really all at the same time. So normally what we see is maybe the flu starts in one region of the country and then will slowly move to other regions. And so while one local community could have a lot of activity, we don't see it everywhere. And right now, it's, it's really odd in that everybody is having a lot of flu right now. Mm -hmm. And as far as severity... All of our indicators are tracking very similar to other seasons when H3N2 viruses were the main virus that was circulating. So this year, that is the main virus circulating. And similar to previous years, we're seeing higher rates of hospitalizations and higher rates of outpatient visits. And we expect we will see higher rates of death um, mm -hmm. by the end of the season. So the 
how this will compare to all the previous years as far as severity, we'll really have to wait until we see the full season. But right now, it looks very similar to other H3N2 seasons. So uh, what you're saying is that the people have an idea that the vaccine is not as effective this year as it is before, but you're saying against certain strains like the H3N2, it is as effective as previous years. So, well, let's talk about vaccine effectiveness now. So we monitor how well the vaccine works every year, and we do that with uh, several networks that we have. And right now we are actively enrolling patients into those networks, so we don't know exactly how well the vaccine is working this year because it's just a little too early for us to know that. But we can look at last year and previous years and we can get an idea of what we expect this year. So last year, the influenza vaccine contains the same H3N2 vaccine virus that it does this year. And the circulating viruses were fairly similar as well. So if we look at how well the vaccine worked last year, overall, it worked about 40%. So it you know, reduced uh, the likelihood of going to the doctor for an outpatient visit related to influenza by 40%. Um, and the specifically against H3N2, the vaccine effectiveness was 33%. Now, in contrast, when we, when we looked at the vaccine effectiveness against the influenza B viruses, it was higher. It was about 54%. And that difference where we see a lower effectiveness against the H3 compared to B viruses and even compared to H1 viruses, which we didn't have last year, but we've seen in previous years, we've seen that difference before. So there there are things about the H3N2 uh, uh, vaccine that uh, and virus that are sort of working against it and making it harder uh, mm. for that vaccine to be as effective, I think, as as the other components of the, of the flu vaccine. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for taking time to be with us, Dr. Fry, Alicia Fry, medical epidemiologist at the Influenza Division at the CDC. Thank you very much. Thanks. This year, the flu vaccine is predicted uh, to be, as Dr. Fry said, about 33% effective against the H3N2 strain of the virus. Scientists have been hunting for a so-called universal vaccine for years, which could attack all the strains of influenza and be much more effective. According to new research published in the journal Science this week, we may be a bit closer to that goal. Joining me to discuss it are my guests, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and Presidential Medal of Freedom awardee. Dr. Fauci, welcome back to Science Friday. Dr. Fauci, are you there? Oh, we see. Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Sorry. Good to be with you. Thank you. Uh, Kathleen Sullivan, professor of pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Dr. Sullivan, welcome back to Science Friday. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Fauci, everyone knows getting the flu shot is no guarantee against the flu, but, but we're learning that the effectiveness of the vaccine is much worse than we all think it should be, something like 30 or 34 to 40 percent against this year's dominant strain. Give us an idea why the numbers are so low. Well, the reason is is several, really, Ira, but the important thing is that we don't get a really good match. The match this year that we have with the virus 
to the vaccine is not an optimal match. When you look at the efficacy of influenza vaccines in general, and you look at all the different years for the last 10 years or so, the best we generally do is about 60%. On a really, really bad year, we can do as low as 10%. And as you just heard from our colleagues at the CDC, we project that it likely will be around 30% or so this year, even though you never know for sure until the end of the year. And what we really need to do, and you mentioned it when you were just talking about it before, we really need to get a vaccine that is making a response against the part of the virus that does not change from season to season. We continually have to chase, as it were, is the word I use, the influenza from season to season to try and get a good match because the part of the virus that we make an immune response against generally is that part of the virus that tends to change or drift from season to season or even change an awful lot when you get a brand new influenza like with a pandemic. There are parts of that virus that don't change very much from season to season at all. They're constant parts. And what the goal of a universal flu vaccine is to make a response against that part of the virus that doesn't change. And if and when we do, and I think it's going to be when, Ira, it's a scientific challenge, then actually I believe we're going to have a much greater efficacy from season to season and not have to mm. worry about always trying to catch up with the changing flu. Because unlike other viruses like measles and others that don't change very much at all, flu has a tendency to change a lot and readily mutates. You know, we've been on the air 27 years, and uh, almost every year I have you come on and talk about the flu season, and you keep saying the same thing. We need to find something against the part that doesn't mutate. What is the difficulty here? Why is that so hard? Well, the, you know, I mean, the body does not like to make a response against that part because the part that changes is what we call immunologically dominant. The, the immune system would rather make a response against the immunodominant. In some respects, that's good news. The bad news is that the immunodominant part is the one that changes a lot. We have just recently been able, because we now have a new way of approaching uh, vaccine development, this idea of having to grow the virus either in eggs or in cells is not only antiquated, it's just not the way you really want to present a particular form of the virus to the body. So when you're looking at a universal flu vaccine, you can take just that part of the virus that you want the body to make an immune response to and present it in a way that hopefully will make a robust response. So even though you and I have been talking about this, only recently within the last five to seven years has the structural biological techniques that we have allowed us to actually do that, namely mm. to present to the body the kind of thing we want it to respond to and essentially force it to respond to that. Mm -hmm. There was some new research out this week that comes at it from a, a different angle. Scientists actually improved immunity to the flu virus by making the virus stronger uh, rather than weaker, Dr. Sullivan. Can you explain what they did? Yes, it seems completely backwards, right? I give these scientists a ton of credit. They really decided to just throw out everything we assumed about making a vaccine and just make it topsy-turvy and figure out a new way. And so what they did was they took the chromosomes of the influenza 
virus apart. They just disassembled the virus. And then they made a series of tiny changes, reassembled thousands and thousands of viruses that just differ by a teeny tiny amount, and then put them in a test tube and said, in a test tube, can we identify some of these changes that actually make the virus better at inducing an immune response? Um, and they were able to, and they found eight specific mutations. And so they made an artificial virus based on the circulating, you heard about the different strains that are mm -hmm. out there. They made an artificial virus based on H1N1 that's especially good at inducing an immune response. In other words, the cells recognize that virus as being foreign better than just the standard old influenza. Now that seems a little bit backwards, but it's actually genius because what that does is it makes the rest of the immune system more likely to make one of these protective responses that Tony's talking about. That's what we need. So if you think of the flu virus as like an M&M candy, when we make antibodies to it, we're making it to the color. So maybe we make a great antibody to green, but then when the red M&M comes around, we don't really have antibodies to it. But what these people did is they generated such a strong immune response, it was to the chocolate in the middle, the part that doesn't change very much. And so um, this was, as you can imagine, a huge amount hmm. of work to make all these thousands of viruses. But by using this incredible brute force approach, they did end up making a better vaccine. Uh, Dr. Fauci, isn't this something what you like what you were saying? You know, you, you attack the chocolate instead of the color? <laughs> exactly, Ara. And, and there are multiple different ways of approaching the concept of a universal flu vaccine. What was just described by Dr. Sullivan is, 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 a, is a very elegant technique. It's been done now in, in mice and in ferrets. The big majestic leap that you and I have been talking about for years is, is it going to work in a human? And I hope it does, because if it does, then that's yet again another step closer in the same way as many other approaches mm -hmm. with different platforms are trying to get to the same goal. So we really are talking about the same thing. How do you get the body to make a response against that part of the virus that just doesn't change? And if you get a really good universal influenza vaccine, we won't have to worry about the kinds of um, uncertainties that we have from year to year. And there are some elegant scientific ways to get there. You've just heard a description of one, yeah. but there are others. I'm Ira Flato. This is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International. There may be elegant, wonderful scientific ideas, but is there any hard, cold cash to get this stuff? Uh, yeah. What, what do you mean by hard cold cash? <laughs> we, we've made universal flu vaccine, Ira, really essentially the number one priority of our institute, the Infectious Disease Institute. We have a lot of other important priorities, but it's just become clear mm. to me as the director and my colleagues here that we really have to full, put a full court press on this mm. because this is something that we've been chasing. As you know, you mentioned it earlier in the show that we've been talking about this for a long time. Yeah. We've really got to get to that end game. Dr. Sullivan, are there any limitations? I mean, you came up with good news, but of course all, all good news have has boundaries to it. Yes, I think there are some real reasons to go into this cautiously, although I'm enormously excited about the technology. I think it was really um, just so creative and innovative. And one of the nice things about their technology is that at least in theory, you could apply it to other viruses. You could think about it for Zika or for Ebola. But you asked if there are limitations. And so um, 
they made a man-made virus with certain mutations in it. And Tony just talked about the fact that influenza really likes to mutate. It likes to change its own genetic heritage. And so you would worry that maybe some of the mutations that were made to generate this artificial virus could back mutate. And then you'd be giving a virus that could cause disease rather than protect from disease. So that's one thing we always worry about with live vaccines. And I think the other thing that might not be so obvious, but this vaccine strain virus that they generated is so powerful and so good at inducing an immune response. You sort of wonder if when the wild type virus comes along, if in some cases people might overshoot. So one of the um, harmful aspects about avian flu, those H5N1s that we sometimes hear burbling up in Asia and chicken farms and so forth, one of the reasons those are so harmful is they actually cause the immune system to go into a kind of frenzy. And in that frenzy, the immune system starts attacking our own body. Mm. And you sort of wonder if this vaccine is going to end up in those circumstances generating right. something that's a little too I get good. You. I get you. Let me get a quick call in for Maria in Sacramento. Hi, Maria. Quickly. Hi. Hi, yes. Um, I've been working in public health for over a decade now. And one of the major concerns or uh, patients have, especially uh, parents, is the ingredients of the vaccine itself. Just like with any other vaccine, uh, for example, MMR, but for the flu season, because it's annually, a lot of them are concerned on the content of aluminum and mercury and all the other ones listed. Is the CDC working or any mm. other pharmaceutical companies on removing those ingredients? Hopefully, uh, once the universal vaccine right. is out. Let me let me get an answer for you, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Sullivan. Yeah. Well, first of all, the 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 doses uh, of the uh, influenza, most of them have absolutely no preservatives in them at all. Single vial dose. The multi-dose ones have a degree of preservative in it that has been clearly shown to be completely safe. And I think you keep getting back to people saying, understandably, I mean, the, the, the idea of questioning when somebody's going to put a substance into you, but what's in the vaccine has been proven to be completely safe from the standpoint of ingredients. Now, every once in a while, in a rare case, someone will have an adverse reaction to a vaccine, but that is extraordinarily rare. All right. There you have it, Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, head of the NI. A.D. and Kathleen Sullivan, Professor of Pediatrics at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. Thank you both. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you. After the break, we'll talk about tracking your sleep with your smartwatches and apps. Does any of that stuff work? This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. What is your bedtime ritual? Now, I'm not trying to get really personal here. I'm just talking about do you read a little bit till you get drowsy and the book slips from your hands, or maybe it's the screen of a smartphone you're staring at. Or do you like to fall asleep to music? Perhaps the soothing sounds of white noise. Ah, that is kind of soothing. How about the thumbing engine of an icebreaker trapped in a snowstorm? Oh, if you like low noises, that would work for you, huh? Very soothing. Mm, Sounds like those, including the iconic summer rain, can be found in a growing number of apps. And Silicon Valley technologists think they have the solution to your sleep problems. Because in addition to sleep tracking apps and smartwatches, there are bedside devices, 
special robotic animals that share the bed with you, self-cooling pillows, headbands that measure and adjust your brain waves, many of them promising to give you a better night's rest. But do they work? And is there much science behind the sales pitch? And if you use any of these apps or gadgets yourself, we want to hear from you. Our number, 844-724-8255. You can tweet us at SciFry. And speaking of numbers, a, a quick correction. Earlier in the program, we gave you out a phone number for our Science Friday book club reading of Frankenstein, and I gave it out with one digit off. Hello, really? You're surprised? The correct number is 567-243-2456. That's for the Frankenstein book. 567-243-2456. Our apologies to the guy with that one-digit different number. Sorry about that. But let's continue here talking about these sleep apps. Angela Chen is a science reporter at The Verge here in New York who reported on all that snazzy sleep gadgets at the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas last week. She joins us here in our studios in New York. Welcome. Thank you. Sorry, Friday. Jamie Zeitzer is a sleep scientist and associate professor at Stanford and the VA Palo Alto Healthcare System. Welcome to Science Friday. Thanks for having me. Angela, you were, as I say, you were just at the Consumer Electronics Show and you saw a lot of sleep gadgets. Big business, huh? Definitely. It's been growing a lot, especially, I'd say, in the past five years. Let's talk about some of the things that you saw. One was the Sleep Score Max, something that sits on your nightstand. Mm -hmm. It sits on your nightstand, and the idea is that it can track you without having, without you having to do anything. You know, unlike an app that you have to, you know, put in your bed or a wristwatch that you have to wear, it looks like a gray speaker. You put it on your nightstand, and essentially using it, um, using radio waves, it can detect motion, and then it'll tell you a sleep score in that way. Now, what's the, what's the idea? When, what does a sleep score mean? How well you were sleeping? Yeah, how well you were sleeping, which essentially here means how much you tossed and turned during the night. And Jamie, would using radio waves give you anything better than a wrist tracker? Well, the data that I've seen indicates that, yeah, it's a little better uh, than a wrist tracker. It's um, it's reasonably accurate in terms of picking up, you know, when you're asleep, when you're awake. Mm -hmm. And Angela, another thing you saw is something called the dream light, a sleep mask. What, how does that work? Right. So that's actually something my colleague saw, and she got to try for three nights. So to be fair, she really liked it. It's this big, bulky thing, and it has, um, and it wakes you up by pulsing light into your eyes instead of you know setting an alarm clock with an app. So you know there's a gyroscope. Um, it's it's really bulky. She couldn't even lie flat on it, but she liked it. I'll have to say. And what did they do for her? I mean, what was the point? She said that it, so she actually does track her sleep. And then she told me that for what it's worth, it told her that she slept really well that night. And I think the main draw was that it woke her up in this so-called natural way with, you know, light instead of some kind of alarm. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Zeitzer, is there any such thing as genetic data that helps you sleep better? Well, I, I wish there were. Uh, it would make my life a lot easier. But um yeah, there, there's reasonable genetic data to indicate that there's variation in, in how people sleep, but uh, the contribution is really quite small and, and really outweighed by people's behaviors and by their environment. Hmm. And, and uh, what does it actually mean to give you uh, biofeedback? Is it altering your brain waves? Uh, what does that mean? Yeah, uh, I mean, it, let me, let me go, let's start with another question. I'll, let me go to Angela first. You tried the dream with two E's. The dream headset it's a pretty pricey device that gives you brain waves measuring back so the idea so let me let me yeah. say what it's trying to improve on 
So the problem with all these sensors is that they're basically just, you know, they're monitoring your movement, and that's not really a perfect proxy. Like, you can not move that very much, but still, you know, sleep terribly. And what the dream is trying to do is actually um, record your brain waves. So the idea is it's headset, you put it on while you're sleeping, and then um, the electrode will record brain activity, and then it'll actually kind of tell you, you know, um, what's happening so you can kind of train yourself to sleep more. You mean tell you what's happening as you're sleeping? I think more as you're, you know, drifting off to sleep. I imagine they're not going to bother you if you're actually, you know, in the midst of deep sleep. And, and uh, Dr. Seitzer, what does that mean? I mean, what are they trying to do there? Well, so so it's, it's basically it's recording your brainwave activity and then uh, using sound to amplify uh, a certain waveform, which is called delta activity. Hmm. It's basically, it's an oscillation, uh, uh, kind of a, a variation in the brain that's anywhere between four times per second and, and once every two seconds. And this is something that tracks the amount of prior wakefulness pretty well. And so the idea basically is that you've got a lot of this delta activity in the beginning of the night, and as you sleep, you dissipate this delta activity. And so, you know, the theory out there is that if you can increase the amount of delta activity uh, using, uh, in this case, sound waves, uh, that you can actually dissipate the delta faster and therefore need less sleep. Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned before about all the other gadgets you, you saw or your team saw at the show. There are, there are also temperature-regulating pillows, plush sleeping robots, and stuff you actually sleep with in your bed, mm-hmm. sleeping with you. So the plush robot, it's made by a company called Somnox. And it, yeah, it looks kind of like a, I would say it's shaped like a peanut. It's kind of hard. And the idea is that you would spoon it kind of the way you would with, you know, your partner. And then you can program it to breathe in and out. And then, you know, as it breathes in and out, you will also breathe in and out. And it'll, you know, kind of soothe you into relaxation. My, I saw it. Um, my colleague tried it for a few nights. And then she said it reminded her of her boyfriend's cat. Um, and then she said that, you know, it wasn't bad. It right. seemed to help her sleep. But then it seems like I think breathing exercises might also do the same thing. And the temperature-regulating pillows, they actually change temperature or you can set them yourself? That's something that I um, that I wrote about and I tried, and it has um, essentially there are a lot of tubes inside it, and it's connected to what is basically a water tank, and then you can change it so you know it's hot and cold. You can change it yourself, and then it also has sensors that will tell you again using motion how well you slept, and so over time it'll kind of adjust. You know, maybe last night you tossed more at this temperature. You know, this now yeah. going to try a different temperature. Yeah. Now, as someone who has trouble going to sleep, there I know there are a lot of different sleep apps. Anything new that you saw out there? Can you give us a quick overview? I don't think there's really anything new. I think they all usually work the same way, you know, tracking sound and motion. And they all sound the same, so they're blurring together in my mind. They're all like sleep cycle, sleep timer, sleep genius. I think you get the yeah, pattern. Yeah, yeah, no. Pillow. I just go for the water, the rain, the summer rain <laughs> for me. Uh, we have that. Now, there are a lot of gadgets and apps that are monitoring sleep. For, and, and Dr. Seitzer, from your perspective as a sleep scientist, is there any real data that the, they actually improve sleep, these things? Um, I'd like to say yes, um, but there isn't a lot of data out there. there. There's a lot of promise. There's a lot of theory. Um but most of the devices that track sleep don't actually give particularly useful feedback about your sleep and how to change it. It's one of the, the major things that are lacking amongst these different kinds of apps and devices. And in terms of the apps that kind of um, well, adjust sleep uh, using sound or, uh, you know, you like the rain falling, again, different people are going to respond to different things. 
Um, and, and, and right now, it's kind of a crapshoot in terms of what works. Mm-hmm. Let me go to the phones, uh, because people, of course, are interested in this. Emily in Ogden, Utah. Hi, Emily. Hi. Hi, go ahead. So this got me thinking about the noise machine that I was using for my my child um, from, you know, after she was born. Um, we used it for the first maybe year, and then my husband started reading about studies that maybe link a later um, occurrence of autism, and, you know, we stopped using it just for other reasons, too, to get her to be able to put herself to sleep and not need it. Um, but I just wondered if anybody had heard of any negative effects mm-hmm. for children developing brains. Mm-hmm. Dr. Seitzer, any? Well, I mean, you, you hit a, uh, on the main negative thing, which is that, you know, in, in general, you want to have people fall asleep without any crutch. And, you know, if, if you're creating an artificial environment that's not going to be always present, that's going to make it potentially more difficult, depending on, on who the child is and, and how they, they naturally sleep and if they're a good sleeper or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you definitely don't want to get someone used to doing something like that that might not always be available. How would, how would you create a, 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 an experiment, scientists, to, to test out whether these gadgets are working? I mean, there are so many different factors, Dr. Seitzer. What, what do you need? How do you limit that? Well, I don't, I don't know if you limit it or, or, or you kind of, you know, um, you kind of regale in the variability, mm. which is that you, you can basically have what's going on right now, which is just a huge number of people trying out different things. And the question becomes, you know, can you combine this? Can you basically look across these various devices and various people and see if they're commonalities? And, you know, one of the problems is that we don't know right now how to record what sleep quality is. Like, how, how do we say that someone got a good night of sleep or not? Uh, right now, we're limited to really just how people say they slept mm. and whether what that you know relates to that, that that's a you know, kind of a separate issue but there are also things about uh, when they last ate when they last drank all kinds of issues like sure. that. you know sure and, and this is what i think is kind of the critical thing that's missing is you know kind of combining across all of these different you know behaviors and environmental factors you know can you basically take this all in and determine in a single individual what's really impacting their sleep. You know, so someone might have a cup of coffee at night, and that might not matter to them. Someone else might have a cup of coffee with lunch, and it's going to mess up their sleep. So it's really that kind of personalization that's going to matter. But Angela, wouldn't this be a great opportunity to crowdsource my devices? In other words, the, the companies are always asking you, do you mind if I send the data back to, you know, the iPhone or whatever, Apple, whoever it is? Wouldn't this not be an opportunity to collect hundreds of thousands of people's experiences and then maybe monitor, crowdsource it, and find out some useful information? I think it could. I think, as Dr. Zeitzer said, it's also, you know, really individual. I personally cannot drink any coffee whatsoever. I'll never sleep again. And another thing is I think that, you know, smartphones and apps, they're also just not good at tracking data themselves. You know, there have been a lot of studies saying Fitbit's not good at, you know, telling your heart rate. When it comes to self-reported food data, we know that's pretty inaccurate if you even bother to do it. At the same time, I think, you know, if we are able to have a sleep app that tries to integrate what we do have of this, it can be helpful by creating, you know, a bigger picture. Mm. And, you know, what I'm fairly skeptical of sleep apps, but what I think they might be good for is regardless of whether you're actually in deep sleep, from night to night, it can probably show you what your patterns and habits are. I'm Ira Flater. This is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International. 
uh, talking about sleep and apps. Uh, now, Dr. Seitzer, I know that you've studied how brief flashes of light could help people pre-adjust to uh, jet lag. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this was uh, kind of kind of an accidental finding that, that came from animals, but yeah, we find that uh, brief flashes of light, so basically think of like a camera flash, and if you give this kind of flash while people are sleeping, it goes through the eyelids, and if you give this um, flash around once every 10 seconds or so, um, it is about three times more powerful than continuous light. And, you know, light is a thing that's adjusting uh, your internal circadian clock, your internal, you know, timer um, to your time zone. And, and so you can think of, you know, when you're jet lag, basically this is the time when light exposure is kind of adjusting this internal clock to fit with your, your new schedule. And so basically using these brief flashes of light, we can do this while people are sleeping and in advance of, of their travel. Even while it goes through their eyelids, the light? Others? Yeah, it goes, goes through the eyelids and doesn't uh, impact the sleep. I mean, some people um, are, are very sensitive to light and this doesn't work in them because it'll, it'll wake them up. But for most people, uh, it goes through the eyelids, doesn't wake them up and changes the time of the brain or the time the brain thinks it is uh, without them kind of being aware of it. Do you think that, that uh, Silicon Valley, uh, Jamie, can beat evolution at sleep? <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, you know, a, a few hundred million years of evolution, I think, trumps Silicon Valley. Um, <laughs> but uh, we're basically taking advantage of something which I, I, I think is kind of an accidental piece of biology. Um, this is not something which naturally occurs. This kind of regularity in flashes doesn't occur, so there wouldn't have been any sort of natural selection mm for this particular process. Um, and in essence, what we're doing is we're taking kind of advantage of, of the existing biology and creating this illusion to the brain uh, to get a much more powerful stimulus into the brain and, and get a much bigger change. Mm -hmm. Angela, was there any device that you really, that really impressed you, sleep devices? Um, sleep devices, you know what? I don't yeah. think there is. You know, after seeing so many different devices, I still think that um, in the end, they're not going to give you really exciting advice. I, the truth is, I know what I should be doing. You know, I know I should be going to sleep at the same time every day, and you know, probably not stressing myself out before sleep, so I, you know, don't get all anxious. Mm. I don't need a device to tell me that. <laughs> Dr. Zeitzer is a sleep scientist. You must have excellent sleep habits, right? This is why we get into the field because <laughs> we all have bad sleep. Um, no, you know, it, it's look. People have have varying degrees of, of bad sleep, and you know, one of the problems is that. You know, we as, you know, in the sleep field, um, you know, we can say it's great to get, you know, eight hours of sleep per night. Um, but for a lot of people, that's just not feasible. And so the thing that we're struggling with is to try to understand, well, you know, is there a secondary suggestion? You know, can we say that you can get, you know, if you get one out of three nights, mm -hmm. you know, what does that do for you? Um, and, and this is something that, you know, I think we all struggle with in trying to understand and how to improve sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of at a societal level. Yeah, well, I hope we haven't put our audience to sleep <laughs> uh, this, this, on this discussion. Uh, soporific, one of the, my favorite words uh, in the vocabulary. Well, thank you both for taking time to be with us today. Thank you. Angela Chen, well, science so reporter at The Verge, and uh, Jamie Seitzer, sleep scientist, associate professor at Stanford University, and the VA Palo Alto Healthcare System. That's all about. That's about all the time we have for today. It's it's going to do it for us today. And if uh, we have stuff up there on our website, it's sciencefriday.com/volcano. If you want to see the pictures of those volcanoes we talked about before, and a reminder that uh, B.J. Liederman composed our theme music. And 
If you missed any part of the show, you want to hear it again, we have podcasts out there for you. You find your favorite podcast site and you can download our podcast. Or you can ask your Amazon Echo or your Google Home to do some, you know, play Science Friday. I won't say it loud. And uh, also you can look at your, you know, your local public radio station and go into their website and play us live while we're on the air there also. So we're, we're, we're so every day is Science Friday. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Flato in New York.